0: Hey everybody, my name is Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling psyched. I have some exciting guests coming up. I have just been enjoying this process of starting a podcast. Dare I say, I've been enjoying it more than almost any other project I've ever dove into. Because I'm realizing that it doesn't take that much to meet a lot of really interesting people. A lot of times, we have this this perception that if we want to meet someone interesting, we need to go to a big city. We need to go to a place like Los Angeles, because that's where all the important people are. Yes, there are some fascinating people who live down in LA, but there are also a lot of really cool people right around you. And you just need to ask them better questions. Because basically all of the guests who I have had on so far have been people who I have met along the way. People who I already know. And it's been so easy and seamless. Like Jessica Rabbit slipping into a red dress. Kind of seamless. Speaking of seamless, would you like to receive this podcast in the most seamless way possible? Would you like to receive my mini-documentaries? In an easy way, head over to my website, kyle.surf, and sign up for the newsletter. No spam ever, only great stuff, and you can get everything that I am digging delivered to you. My guest today is Peter Mel. Peter is a broadcaster for the World Surf League and is the commissioner for the Big Wave World Tour. He is also the 2011-2012 Big Wave World Tour Champion and 2012-2013 Mavericks Invitational Champion. In this conversation, we talk a lot about what goes on behind the scenes for Pete's job. You will see Pete in front of the camera commentating, interviewing the best surfers in the world whenever you're watching these events, but you do not see a lot of what goes on to make these events possible and Pete is just one of those guys who makes my job easy. He is a professional question asker and answerer. So, hope you enjoy this conversation with Peter Mel. Kyle Show. did you grow up on the east side
1: well no to be honest i grew up on the south side i grew up in aptos la selva beach area so i went to aptos high i went to valencia i went to elementary school in in aptos and so i c- kind of came from that but obviously my roots i was born on 40 i was born in, at uh um, the hospital in frederick i can't even, the community hospital yeah yeah and then um our store was on 41st Avenue. So I was living, that's where we were living. But we moved in, I think it was like, probably right when I started to go to school, we moved to Aptos and lived uh, right up Trout Gulch area.
0: That's so similar to me. So <laughs> I, um, cause growing up, you know, I would see video of you surfing the west side, surfing the east side, surfing the south side. And, uh, you know, for those people who don't live in Santa Cruz, even though it's such a small community, there are these fractures within it and people ask you where you're from when you're growing up. And so I was born on the Midtown. Then my parents split up. My mom moved to Trout Gulch. My dad moved to the east side. So then, my, then my mom moved to the west side where <laughs> I went to Mission Hill Junior High. And now my mom lives up Soquel. So it's like the fingers of Santa Cruz have
1: spread out. We all talk about that, right? Like it, there was a fracture in Santa Cruz, especially when the era of the surf shop was was kind of coming to fruition in the 60s and 70s. It was a, a major one in the 70s. I mean, it was like the west siders, surfers only surfed steamer lane in the west side. Uh, rarely did there's actually fights that when they did cross borders at the river mouth there and come over to the east side, you know, there was that, that kind of tension. Um, you know, that's obviously still, we talk about it out of history, but it's not a, a you know, it's not a full on you know, war anymore. It's more just out of pride. Yeah. Know? And, you know, and even the South side, you know, growing up in the beaches really wasn't in existence back then because people just didn't live down there, but the beach breaks were always places that people served. And that's where I grew up. Um, it's interesting now we, we segregate it, but I mean, as you would know, and as I would know, we, we spent time throughout Santa Cruz as a whole, right? And embraced the entire county. And that was something that I kind of always did. And as soon as I had my vehicle, I, I went where the ways were best. I didn't care about where it was, if it was on the west side or the east side. I didn't just try to control pleasure point you know even though I surfed there a lot I didn't try to control similarly and I couldn't because of all the boys anyway but that was something that I wanted to spread my you know I wanted to be able to do it and, and sure enough you're driving up the coast you're driving all the way up to Half Moon Bay and you're driving south you're going through Big Sur like We live in a really unique area you might as well embrace everything if you can get there in one day driving
0: do it well and even still you're you're chasing the best waves in the world you're in one of these unique positions where you're traveling to the best waves in the world you're not always surfing on the best days as your job as a commentator but I saw just out on the last contest in Nazareth, you're getting a session out there the day after the contest do you think that that is partially what's driven you to move from Santa Cruz and continue to be chasing waves and be in the scene
1: Well, it's a lifestyle, right? So I mean, that's the whole thing that my dad did um, was that he, he wanted to be able to find the time to go surfing when the waves are good and you find a job that allows you to do that. So you become self-employed. He's done that. I think every um, surfer that is really that passionate and wanting to be there for the best days are going to find a way to do that. Whether it's uh, a job that you either walk away from or that you create a job that allows you to do that. And yes, that is absolutely what's driven me throughout my career. I was very fortunate being in from Santa Cruz that I've had the store um, as, a, as a basis. What it's done is it allowed me to learn about surfing and, and the connections and the networking that comes from it. Um, professional surfing as well, because you know I followed this dream of wanting to be a professional surfer and I've had to kind of forge my way through it because it wasn't easy. You know, Northern California surfers have never been able to really find those big dollar sponsorship deals. We've had to kind of create our own way you know, and a lot of support from my family. But also I got support from, from sponsorship, you know, and, and that allowed me to, you know, and I think that there was an era too, that if you look back at Santa Cruz as a whole, there was a, a a group of talented surfers that really created a niche for ourselves. And a lot of that came from guys like Tony Roberts, you know, and what Tony Roberts was able to do for us as a cinematographer. And he did the first VHS videos that ever came out were. Some were made right here. You know, all a lot of them were made out here, and people all over the world watch those things. I mean, I still run into people like, "Oh yeah, God, is that mental surfing?" Mental surfing, one, two, <laughs> yeah, surf so, skate. Yeah, I mean, it's surf, I grew skate. up on all those movies. Exactly, and there's a lot. There's a generation that has, and so he really helped us kind of create a, a value for ourselves.
0: Isn't it interesting how often um, the success of pro surfers in an area a lot of times comes down to one cinematographer. It Who can. makes it? I mean, it can. We really. were fortunate though. We had a couple, yeah. right? I
1: mean, we had several guys. I mean, Josh Palmer was another one. We had, uh, you know, Nelly uh, Chachi. I mean, there's still even now to, you know, Clough. Chris Cloth was another one. Like you look back and all these guys, there was there was a talent pool of not only just cinematographers and photographers, but surfers, and we all just kind of worked together as a community to to move forward. Now, there's good and bad that comes with that, right? Um, what? Well, for me, <clears throat> um, looking back on it, as a group, we were always trying to outdo each other. Right. Every session, whoever got the best photo and it was this healthy competition. But it also translated into we were competitive and all sorts of everything. And it came down to partying and 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 the dark side of it, too. We were you know, that kind of fell into it. We all were very similar. So if one guy got into it, we got into it, too. And it just was this thing that happened in Santa Cruz. Now, again, the positive is we lifted ourselves as a group but we didn't really ever lift each other individually. It was always like, hey, if someone's getting a little bit uh, too big for their britches, like, that's how we saw it. It wasn't that he was being successful because he's doing something different and cool. It was because, oh, he's too cool for us now. And then we would, you know, you kind of hassle him. Yeah. And bring him back down to their level.
0: It's a little bit of the um, the crab analogy. If one crab's trying to uh, pull his way out of the pot, the rest of the crabs will pull him down. Yeah, and that's, exa- I mean, as again, the positive side of it is, as a group,
1: you lift each other. It grows the whole thing. And it it's keeps you helping. humble. Yeah. And
0: and that's like one of, the you learn things, well, yeah, one of the things that I'm most proud of in terms of Santa Cruz is that you will get slapped down if you do start thinking you're too cool. But, but you're also accepted too, right? Yep. If you fail,
1: they'll, they'll also kind of bring you back to the group, right? Yep. And that you're not going to be shunned into the point of where, and that's almost again, another good or bad, right? So you, you screw up so badly that, you know, you're shunned to the curb in most communities. Sometimes you'll be banished forever but not in Santa Cruz, right? You're, you're, you're still gonna be respected for what you've done, you know, unless you've really burned a bridge, you know? Um, overall, you're gonna be, you know, you're accepted all the time as a group. We do that. And again, that probably doesn't help somebody who's having issues either. Right. So you're always keep coming back. You're never going to learn your lesson. And, you know, or you ultimately I wish we would do a little bit stronger kind of, um, you know, maybe stronger help or or even the other way around is building each other up. Yeah. And and, and pumping each other up. I mean, and I think as a community, we are learning that we've had to go through a lot. You know, I I feel guilty for what um, I brought to Santa Cruz because of my drug use and what I did, you know, in the past. you know, it became all of a sudden you walk around the world, like, Oh, Santa Cruz, man. Oh gosh, everyone's screwed up up there. And like, you know, a guy like Nat Young who, you know, had to live with that. And, you know, and I think he was, it was a bummer for him to have to be associated with that.
0: Yeah. And, and and as a result, you can see the pendulum swing in the opposite direction for him where, I mean, he's the ultimate workout, surf three times a day. It's rad. It's rad. And you know, that wouldn't have happened without that probably. probably I mean
1: uh, probably from the community but also his I mean I think that you know Rosie had a uh, his mom had a big part of that and um you know that what she did to support him and through it all so I mean there's a lot of factors that come into it you know yeah. again as I, I mean I, I talk about it, this community I'm really proud of this community I love this community um you know and for what it's done for me to to help grow You know, and again, I would never trade in for what I had in the past. It's like, yeah, I wish I would have done this. No way. That's how I learned. That's how I grow.
0: What was the decision for you to become a commentator? Because that is one of those decisions of now you're not in Santa Cruz as much because you're traveling around the world um, working. What was that like? Um, Did you feel support from people or was there a little bit of that kind of crab being pulled down? not at all that was a that was a unique one um i think that that
1: for me it was this thing where it just timing right I, it, it wasn't something i was pursuing it literally had it wasn't something that i was looking back as a child going i want to be a broadcaster you know it was just it just happens happens like i had a friend of mine that i uh, was doing webcasts and it was really at the very beginning of this broadcasting stuff and the, and they gave me a start right it was it was jay johnson he was a uh, part of action sports and uh, he had developed this company that he was going to basically do webcasts around the world and I just started doing it and it was literally something that he just hired me to do them and I had a blast doing it. It brought me part of a you know, part of an event and I was literally doing double duty. I'd actually compete and commentate and so I was able to do both <laughs> and no matter what I was going to get a little bit of money for being there.
0: Bring me into that situation. What were uh, some of those first few experiences like for you? Um, Well, I mean, I,
1: there was one, I mean, I, I, one in particular, and it's funny because I, I wish I had that photographic memory. I don't right? I don't know dates. I don't know. It was just back then. I don't even know when I started, uh, it, it, it came down to, there was a a moment. I think it was really actually more towards the end of my at least professional serving career. There was the Vans pure classic and this one sits with me because I did well in the event, but I was also commentating the entire event. Rat boy was in the final with me, uh, Micah Byrne, um, What's the kid's name that from Hawaii ended up winning it? It's slipping my mind right now. But um we you know, I made the final and I was forty years old and you know, I, I went all the other final and little teeny surf at Huntington Beach and here I was with Rat Boy you know, one of my you know, and I think he was even helping. All that commentate. Southside <laughs> knowledge coming into play at Huntington Beach. <laughs> and you know, and, and but that experience where you're able to kind of you know, I think it maybe helped a little bit because I was able to watch the event very closely and understand what was needed to to win and that was something that I paid attention to and I think that that's something that's really helping professional surfing now is is the broadcast of you know what we're teaching people how to compete in events but also teaching people how to watch them and understand the, the dynamics of professional surfing and that's the change that's happened so much but I literally got lucky in the sense that I just was brought into it as you know hey try this out you know and and I was myself and I think that I had a good time doing it and I think that translated into getting more jobs. But also then my sponsor, longtime sponsor, Quicksilver, they had their professional events and I would never really graduated from those local events, which was, I was doing the Water classic here. I was doing some down South. Um, and then I transitioned into the championship tour where we went into the big leagues, you know, and that was Quicksilver, giving me a chance. And I learned a lot from them and I was doing the Quicksilver pros. I'd go to Australia, I'd go to France. Um, you know, the Eddie was another event that was kind of part of it. And I'd play double roles there too, you know, where I'd compete in the Eddie when it happened. And also commentate
0: what were some of the biggest mistakes you made early on commentating <laughs> um,
1: early on I think that there's and I still have them. I still have my my verbal tics as you'd like to call them you know that, that happen I still have them I mean I, mean, I don't I don't really study um, intensely on trying to make myself better at this it's literally just I'm just doing it I'm, I'm living it so in the moment that a lot of times that I get myself into trouble <laughs> and, and I haven't made any huge major mistakes. I've been very fortunate or else I wouldn't have this job, but I mean, overall there's some times, I mean, I, I look back on, there was a moment, um, a couple of years ago where um, Mick Fanning had, uh, had his brother pass away and I, and I, you know, it was like a, a moment where people wanted to know, but you know, rip curl at this time was a sensitive time and I, and I kind of pushed him a little bit in an interview after his heat and it was, it wasn't timing. wasn't right. And that was a mistake in my heart. I should have, I should have, in hindsight, I should have talked to him and said, Hey, I know this is a, a sensitive time. Can I bring it up? Or do we not even want to touch it and communicated before I just kind of prodded him online. And I think that was a mistake. You know, I, I would have loved to have communicated better to him because yeah, I respect him as a man and I respect him as a surfer, obviously. Um, and that was a moment where I can go, Yeah, hey, you know, think about that kind of stuff. And I'm sure there's mom- other moments where I've stepped on my tongue and said some things I probably shouldn't have, but nothing to the point of where. I'm regretting it. You know, it's just I'm trying to be straight. I'm trying to tell people uh, how you know how this works. Is
0: yeah, and uh, are there a number of like questions that you'll usually go to when you're coming back from interviewing people? Have you found that there are those like five that you'll go to, or is it kind of just every time you're trying to stay as present as possible? Because you've built a rapport with most of these guys; they respect you, Um, so they're gonna. If you shoot them straight, they're probably gonna give you a straight answer. But are there those few that you find really work?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that there's always something there. Um, but ultimately, that's the one you know thing that I look at uh, when I watch broadcasts is that there's too much of that already, right? It, it becomes, you know, the standard question. You're going to get the standard answer, and you're not getting anything out of it. So ultimately, trying to do something that... Is it is going to bring out something different, you know? And I and sometimes that's I guess a mistake too because all of a sudden I'm trying to get something out of somebody and the question doesn't come out how it should, and, and all of a sudden you're getting this flat answer that you're like, what are you talking about? You know, I don't have a ton of those, and I'd rather I'd rather fail trying to get something different out of somebody than than just give that standard. Oh, so what were you riding out there? Or you we're know, just like, taking it one heat at a time. Yeah. You know? Well, and you're gonna get that no matter yep. what anyway. And and I, it, to be honest, there's you think about this too. We've got I think there's seven. Uh, Brazilians on on tour you've got um, for the most part there's a few others you know Europeans that are English is their second language so you're not gonna get true feelings out of somebody when you're looking at someone with their second language there's a few out there that are really good at it but ultimately it's it's you know they're gonna they've practiced trying to just get through the interview rather than actually give you something
0: right because they're trying to make it into their next heat That's <laughs> and, what they're thinking and, about.
1: And they, and they could you know yeah they need to do it and yeah they gotta I mean there's a, there's a couple that are really good and you can just you can throw them any question and they're just going to do they're going to ramble on and do whatever they want to talk about. Who are the best? I think Kelly's are very articulate in what he wants to say and do. You know, Kelly you got to challenge him with questions, but they got to be good or if he'll kind of sometimes he'll throw it back at you. Um, but I think that his analysis and of... Kelly,
0: what do you think about new energy technology? Is, well like, well... <laughs> <laughs> right? You could do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you'd have him go for an hour. <laughs>
0: that's probably what I'd do. <laughs> yeah.
1: And that, and that's, I think it's cool, but I think that as a sport, you kind of have to keep it. You yeah. have to keep it sport-related. Yeah, you do. But again, he na- analyzes his competitors better than anybody. And I think that's why he's so good at what he does. He is able to... Articulate it and see it and understand it and you know bring it to his own strengths and you know That's something that's um, I think everybody in the world should try and learn how to do.
0: Uh, What do you think he does? uh, Differently than other people you're talking about analyzation. What do you I'm just being there with him What do you think his process is well? I think it's a lot of that first
1: of all I think that he he'll he'll sit and he'll watch and if he's not on the beach watching he's watching on the webcast He watches everything so I think he pays attention and it's not just one You know, he's not just watching men, he's watching the women, he's, he's watching big wave. He's, you know, he's seeing it all because I think that that's what's interesting. And if he's not doing that, he's actually trying to, to learn, um, about eating well and and food and, and, you know, disease and all of these things that are going to help him to better himself, you know? And when you understand those things in life and you're putting all of your energy into bettering yourself to better or bettering the world, which is, I think he's going after as well, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's a lot of work to do that. But he's somebody who who does pay attention to that. and he does a lot of reading and he does a lot of i mean he's on his phone a lot and he's on you know looking and learning and i think that's like he did, if he's doing that now i mean he's at the at the end i wouldn't say i don't know about the end of <laughs> yeah. his career but i mean because who knows what this guy will do but um we said that after six yeah, right? <laughs> so he's and i think and, and that's why he's as good as he is because he's that determined to understand and better himself. And he does that and he, he learns. I mean, he's just a giant. I saw the alley-oop he did the other day when they had that session at pipeline, at pipeline yeah. about a month ago or whatever. He did that huge alley-oop. I mean, that guy's 44 years old and he punted as big an alley-oop as, as you know, his cohort, of John, John Florence. And he's still competing at that high of a level to be doing that kind of surfing. It's, it truly is incredible. I think we take it for granted that he's doing that stuff. Um, still, I mean, and, and he, he, he's now told us that he's going to go for a 12th world title like that's confidence and i believe that he could do it i mean it's not going to be as easy and i think that's why he's challenging himself he knows it's not going to be as easy because the talent is so much better now and and you know he's not just smoking guys left and right he's getting beat and it's harder
0: yeah he probably loves that have you changed your technique at all since you've been uh rolling around with the best surfers in the world as far as my surfing ability? Yeah, you're surfing. I
1: think there's equipment stuff. stuff. Um, I think that that's something where you can kind of gain a little advantage as you get older. Start looking at ways to improve your surfing and and always
0: refining your surfing. Balsa boards and single fins. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's,
1: that's a, you know what? If you have to refine your surfing to be able to keep doing what you want to love yeah. and it, or it's something where it inspires you, sure, go for it, man. Like, go or, uh, jump on a single fin. It's not easy to ride a single fin yeah. and, and make it look good. 100%. Right? So it's like,
0: I'm all about that what have you what have you changed specifically
1: specifically um well I mean I'm looking at materials I think that that's something that intrigues me Um, I've been part of manufacturing surfboards my entire life my father's been doing it so it's something that I feel like is is you know you need to try these things out for yourself you you talk about it you learn about the products and you understand them and then you go and you write them and applying that knowledge and and what you think and then you can kind of um, learn from that and, and, and hopefully it spurs ideas similar to what you're talking with people and you want to spur ideas about what you want to do in your life. This is the way you do it. You communicate with, with these people. So there's different foams, there's different types of constructions. Also learning about trying to, um, make these <laughs> crafts that we ride a little bit more environmentally friendly. I think that's important and all of these things to still keep the performance level there, but also make these boards and materials either last longer so you can use them longer or um, you know, find a way to recycle them.
0: Do you bring boards with you when you're traveling Absolutely. around the world? Absolutely. And what, w- what? WSL
1: has been amazing in that sense that they understand that, you know, that was the first thing they said. It's like, yeah, we'll take care of your surfboards. If you're going to bring them, we'll take care of them. So they, they pay to go over there. Well, it makes it
0: so much more dynamic. One moment that stands out to me in your commentating career was when you were sitting on your board at Chopu and it was the John John Kelly Heat. And they both got you know a 10, a 10, and a 10, and a 9. And then the the heat ended, and they're waiting for that last score to come in. And you paddled up to both of them with a the waterproof mic. And you're like, hey, guys, let's do an interview right here, right now. Which yep. is, just makes it so much more entertaining as a viewer. Those are the moments. Those right? are the moments. Those are the moments that
1: um, you have to bring uh, to the world that I think that um, we – that's the only sport that's allowed to do it, right? I mean, we're literally that intimate that we can, you know, we can share those moments in the water, and and you know, it's great. I think it's amazing, and uh, you know, I want more of it.
0: Yeah, you don't see the the NFL commentator like interviewing the guy while the play is still going, pretty much, or, or in the huddle, right? Yeah, in the huddle. What exactly. are you guys thinking? Yeah, you know, like then, and
1: that's I think some of the part that I want to keep bringing is is those intimate moments, those moments that you don't get to see anywhere at any time, but also being protective of what their private you know moments too you got to be careful of that so it's like you know there are friends and this is a small community you know surfing world is small and you don't want to you don't want to make mistakes and and piss someone off it's just
0: uh, what are you trying to do in a moment like that when you're paddling up to those two guys it while the clock is is just running out what are you trying to get out of them
1: I think that they're what they're feeling I think how are you feeling you know and that's a, a it's a generic question but hoping that they can be genuine about what they're feeling like oh I'm nervous. I don't know. You know did you, you know you don't want to f- f- put words in their mouth. I, I that's one thing I think that we need to be careful of as as uh, broadcasters is that we want to know their feelings. So asking questions that are going to give us that not putting words in their mouth or you know and, and and I find myself as trying to refine it is to be able to ask those simple questions. That are going to draw the emotion, the feeling, the understanding of what's happening at that moment. So it's got to be, you got to be short, concise, and to the point.
0: Yeah. And, and not do something like, like, oh, you just lost. You're probably feeling pretty bummed right now. Exactly.
1: You know, you want to, you just like, hey, I think that if there's a a poignant moment in the heat to, to kind of lead in with that and bring up a point, because that would be what you thought was a turning point in the heat, or you thought was a, a, a point that they needed to discuss. And, bring, and so you lead in with that, hoping that that point was actually a, a, an understanding for them,
0: and they can elaborate on it. Um, bring me bring me into uh, a day in the life when you wake up early at one of these events. So we
1: um, are on call.
0: What's happening that I'm not seeing as a viewer?
1: Um, we're up early. So we're up every morning, 5.30, 6 a.m., and we're going to a meeting where we're going to discuss the points of the day. Uh, you know, we've got a dawn patrol, which is a show that we put on every morning that kind of either talking about, uh, the points from the past, um, or what's gonna be coming up in the day. So those are things we have a meeting. We all meet together, all the, all the commentators and we find our, we adjust our roles. There's different roles that you play. You know, you've got play by play, which is generally going to see Joe Trapel um, and Ronnie Blakey are our head play by play analysts. And then you have the color analysts who are going to be Potter or, um. Ross Williams and their roles are specifically one is going to give you all of the things that are happening. The scores, the time, um, and then they're going to kind of pitch questions to the color to elaborate and the color is going to elaborate. That's kind of every sport has that kind of roles. And then I, a lot of my role would be I'll sometimes fill in for color. Um, I even sometimes do a host role here and there too, but, um, mostly mine is going to be a color analysis in the water or on the beach or a reporter on the water. So we're, we're really journalists and that's how we have to look at it you know but we're also friends so <laughs> with all the athletes and and so we have you know it's a it's a fine line because uh we are such an intimate sport in that sense
0: and then um keep me going through this yeah. day so the
1: day is and then we'll do dawn patrol and we'll either have an event on or off and depending on the role so an example for if i'm going to take the water role for the day or something or you know strider and i've been splitting those um that role strider was And, you know, so sometimes they'll put us out in the water. And so we'll give you, I mean, I love weather. I, you know, I follow weather. So I think that's something that I always, I'm going to understand for that day. I'm going to take the time to look up the tides. Um, If there's buoy readings, I'm going to find out about the buoy readings. I'm going to talk to Surfline. And, um, you know, if I have any questions about what the forecast is going to be. So I'm going to understand the day and what's going to happen through the day so that I can give, you know, I'm going to be the weatherman. Right. Yeah. And I love weather. I love the dynamics of it. And I love kind of being able to pull stuff from the gut and that's something that I'll study. So I'll take the time to do that. Um, you know, and if there's big heats, you know, you want to kind of understand those big heats and why they're big heats that are happening through that day. So you study, you do, you take the time the night before you take the time during the day, during those meetings, we bring up ideas, all that kind of stuff. And so then we'll start the day, you know, if we're going to do a competition, we're in, we're going, um, if we're not, and we have a lay day, we may end up going and doing, um, a planning to talk to a, uh, an athlete off day and see what they're doing. Um, or we may just go surfing. Anyway, so that's the best one.
0: <laughs> so much up in the air at all times. Always, always. Always.
1: And you look at my role specifically too, as not only broadcaster and commentator, that which has all of the things you need to study on that, but I've also got the big wave where I'm making calls for, as a big wave commissioner, You know, I got to study all the maps that are happening around the globe because maybe we have a big wave event happening at the same time. So I get spread a little thin in that sense. Um,
0: So this is an impossible question, but what is your role as the big wave commissioner? So there's a lot of things. I mean, the first and foremost of any
1: commissioner of a league is to hold up the integrity of the sport and of surfing as a whole. You know, so we don't want to just make stuff that's going to be corny or out of out of sorts. So we always have to kind of keep that in. And then there's the rules and regulations and the development. I mean, think of big wave. We, you know, we took what. Gary Linden had developed and you know as me as a competitor for many of those years what I wanted to see change wise and then we also had the broadcast and you know elaborating on the broadcast and making that better. So we I was integral with Gary and and the group of the WSL to develop the tour to make it better. Um, You know and and obviously talking to the athletes and trying to figure out ways to to improve the sport for them make it safe um, but also make it exciting for the fans. So you're always trying to keep everybody in mind, um, the league itself and protecting the league, the athletes, protecting the athletes, making sure that everything's in line for them, but also making a product that the fans are going to love and sponsors are going to love. So it's a lot, right? That's just holding up the integrity and rules and regulations, let alone trying to develop a way for athletes to, you know, upcoming athletes. How, how do we, I become a big way surfer and what does it take? What do I need to do in order to get invited to these events? And it's, it's a big question. Um, I'm like, I've. Kind of developed, I think, with again all these people that know the sport to um, have a pathway, and that was that was kind of part of my when I came in. That was something that I wanted to. That's why I took the role. Um, you know, I could have still been competing at that point in time. I still felt like I could ride big waves and compete with the best. Oh, you do, <laughs> you, you do. We're gonna get into Nazareth, and you're out there. Um, and <clears throat> but. Uh, it was an it was an important time for me like okay what do you what do you want to do like what is important to you um is it to be self-serving and and win events still or is it to develop the sport to allow um the youngsters and and the rest of the world to figure out a pathway because you know there's only 44 guys that are uh, not even 44 sorry 34 guys that are on the championship tour yet 17 women so that's a very small percentage of the surfers in this globe that are actually going to be able to make a career out of professional surfing so you got to figure out you know and big wave was something that i'm very passionate about and i wanted to see that there's a, a way for big wave surfers to to make a little bit of money to be able to follow and get better and make big wave surfing better you know you got to give 100 percent i mean pretty much 80 percent of the guys or maybe even more are are working other jobs right and so they don't have the time to truly focus on getting better at big wave surfing. So it's a slow process, right? Whereas if you can have an athlete that's going to go there and and do hundred percent focus directly on riding big waves, what, what is that going to do for the sport? I mean, Ian Walsh is probably one of those guys that um, Greg Long, those guys were solely focusing on getting better and what it takes to do that. And I think between dreams in between dreams is a, is a perfect look at what you need to do in order to become a, a, that's Ian Walsh's new movie. Yeah. So Ian Walsh did that. And, uh, you know, and I haven't fully seen the entire film, but I, I know for a fact that it's um, it's got a, it's a very insightful look at what he goes through to do what he does.
0: What uh, aspects of creating the Big Wave Tour and, and being the, the commissioner are you most proud of up to this point?
1: Well, I think the the pathway in which, um, in order to, to do that is getting more clear. It's not crystal clear, but for the most part, you've got... At this you, point, what does that look like? So right now, at this point, you have the top 10 guys who are on the, the World Tour who, at the end of the season, those top 10 get a get a berth into next year. Now, that was this year. So next year, we're going to go only to top eight. Um, so we're taking those last two spots are actually going to be coming from a qualifying series, which is in development right now. Very challenging um, to be running those events because of main thing is cost. You know, there's these events that may or may not happen, you know, and sponsorship dollars are uh, challenging to find at, at, at events that may or may not happen. Um, so we're trying to develop all this other content around it and, and draft the championship tour events, which are our big wave events that we have now, um, and make, make them have value. Um, so that's a challenge. I mean, that was, this is our first year doing it with that kind of qualifying events. So there'll be two qualifiers that go into next season. We haven't had any qualifying events yet, you know, and it's, it's been a challenge, like you said, to do it. So, um, again, hoping by the end of February, we're able to accomplish that and get, you know, two more qualifiers. So again, that's something that we're kind of still developing, but,
0: and are you in communication with potential sponsors as well? Is that part of your role? Uh,
1: I mean, no, I'm not, I mean, there's a a whole sales team that works at the world surf league that, that is in charge of all that. You know, the, the, the way that the property works is, is that, you know, the WSL produces owns, um, the championship tour. Right, whereas the qualifying series are, are individually owned by event promoters. So, all what, the quali- what do you mean by that? How's well, it? the the sponsorship and media and all that stuff for qualifying events are still owned by the event. So it's not owned by the WSL. Yes, we take the rankings and we take all of that, but the actual there's a, some events that are that are either co-produced, um, you know, like IMG and and World Surf League do the U.S. Open, right? But that's still a qualifying event. Although we add the women, so it's kind of a co collab between qualifying series, 10,000 event for the men's and then a championship tour for the women's and they're, you know, they're combined together. So they kind of share those, um, that event. Um, an example of another qualifying series event that we have is the Vans triple crown. Now the Vans triple crown has two qualifiers, two 10,000s that are um, supposed to be run independently, but now are produced by the world surf league as the broadcast and also the ownership of the rights to the triple crown are, are you know shared in that whole thing with Vans, and so those are specific events that are still kind of produced with the World Surf League whereas you know uh, a, a Coldwater Classic <clears throat> is produced by O'Neill gotcha right so they're owned by O'Neill they own the event they would do the Coldwater Classic on their on their own and it's just the rankings and the format and all that stuff is endorsed by the World Surf League so like I said the qualifying series is is owned by the event. so that and they're produced by the event so that they can have a webcast that is paid for and produced and done on its own. It's independent. Gotcha. Right? it's it's a dynamic thing. And, and, you know, going forward, how does that work? I mean, that's that's for the World Surf League Dancer. But um, I know as far as the big wave, we're trying to find those sponsors, find those individual events that can come in and we can endorse them. And they use the format. They uh, hopefully have a broadcast to help the value of the event. And um, we produce them. And it's hard work. It's hard to find that money around, you know, to do that for sponsorship. So that's been some of the challenges we also have to go back to the original question of how this works. We also have four allocated full-time spots for performance of the year on the big wave awards. So that's kind of like what we originally planned was like, Hey, how do we get new blood on tour? What are some of the ways to do that? And we looked at how you know, it worked in the past is like performances throughout the season. You get recognized for that. So the big wave awards is a property that's owned by the World Surf League. It's originally was the, you know, the, the big wave awards. It was a, 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 its own event. And and now it's part of a property of the World Surf League. You got the biggest wave. You've got, um, you know, performer of the year. You've got women's performer of the year. You've got all these different categories that are happening in that So we take four spots out of that. So. That kind of gives us the opportunity for anybody in the globe who wants to perform and ride big waves can do that. They can go and, and surf all the big waves and, and, and that's the passion of it. You want to ride big waves. You're going to find a way to get to a spot and you're going to get there and you're gonna park it and you're going to learn how to surf it. And hopefully you get exposure doing it. It shows up on the big wave awards. And at the end of the season, it's voted on by a, a group of um, amazing surfers that have that know the sport. Um, that chooses, there's a ranking from first to say, we, we put in probably 15 to 20 guys, whoever, you know, deserves to have a shot. Who's gone around the globe and chase big waves. They get thrown in the pool and then they rank those guys. And we'll take, we took seven last year. Whereas Shane Dorian won it. Um, you had Aaron gold, you had Kyle, Lenny, uh, Jamie Mitchell, you know, and Jamie Mitchell is a prime example of somebody that really put in the extra effort. It wasn't on tour and he knew what he needed to do. He went to every time waves broke anywhere around the world. He did it. He went there and he got photos of it and it showed up in the big wave awards and that performance was there. And, uh, sure enough, he got a spot on tour. So it's a way for somebody to find a way, um, to get onto the championship tour and and get a full-time spot and get a shot.
0: What was the experience like for you having the women's heat at Jaws?
1: Well, let's get back to that. Sorry. Uh, that's a, that's go a longer it. one. Right? And yeah. we'll go back to just in, in answering the full question, right? So you've got the rankings, which are 10. They're going to come off either the QS or the, um, championship tour. You've got the four performers there. Those are the full-time spots, right? Then there's going to be four WSL wildcards that are chosen by the commissioner's office. One of those wild cards is actually allocated as an injury wild card. So if someone, you know, those are the same as the championship tour on the, and, uh, the regular or the men's league and the women's league, you give one of those spots. They actually have two for the championship tour. So we give one to the big wave. So if someone, you know, couldn't go to the events because of their injuries, we can allocate one of those spots that leaves three wild cards that are chosen, um, by the commissioner's office it can be an international performance. It can be a past performance of that event that the guy didn't get in. You take into all considerations on, on, uh, why someone should be given those spots. But again, it's only three. Then you have, six left and those six left are event wild cards that are chosen by the event. Let's take Piahi, Pia- Pia- for example. So you have the event manager there who knows obviously the spot and puts in a lot of extra, you know, that puts in the effort. Um, Maui's got a, a huge talent pool of guys who surf Jaws and Piahi. And so we give those six spots to the event. And sometimes it could be a sponsor where a sponsor could go, well, I want to have some of my guys in it that aren't in the event. So they could say, oh, well, we'll give you one wild card there. So those six could be spread depending on how the event, um, takes place. Um, you know, place like, uh, let's see, uh, you know, Nazare, for example. Um, you know, you look at, you know, Garrett was at the pioneer. He doesn't live in the area. Um, but spends a lot of time there. So more than most. Yeah. And so he would get a spot. So he was given one of those spots and then we went through and had some locals um, Portuguese guys, but also we looked at guys who had spent time there. So it's not specific to, we call them sometimes call them local spots, but it really isn't necessarily all about just the locals, but it's about guys who put their time in there. Um, They may live in England. Like the example that we had, you know, Andrew Cotton um, come in and, and do it. And he was somebody who spent a lot of time in Nazare, you know? And again, I think the Maui guys for for Piahi, it was like, there's enough guys in that serve Piahi that deserve those spots. And so you kind of want to, for that event, we kept it specific to Maui. I mean, you could have encompassed the entire island, islands chain, right? And bring guys from Oahu, but I don't think that was necessarily fair. And I know that in communication with, you know, the guys in Piahi, that that's how we wanted to see that event work out. And so that's how it is. So it's,
0: it's tough. How do you make all these decisions? This is well, crazy. It's crazy. It, it, you're right. It I is. mean, it's, it's just so much. It is, but I mean, tranquility is not waiting for the storm <laughs> to pass, yeah. but to be at the center of it. And, and I, and I think if
1: you, you know, how would I see it being the most fair way to do it? That's kind of what I always kind of default to. And, and obviously asking and communicating. What is the fairest way? Do you feel like for everybody, and that and that's something that I really pride myself on is being available to be able to talk to people when they want to give me their opinion, understanding why it's coming. That opinion coming from is it self-serving? Is it is it community-based? Is it uh, sponsorship-based? Whatever it is, you know, you got to listen and you understand it, and and then you apply it as needed so that all of a sudden we come in and have this really fair process, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do. It, it, it's not easy. I, you talk about it; it's not e- at all. That's just the one complicated. And then you got to talk about the call and that's a whole other different thing. So there's your spots. You got 10 from the rankings, four from performer of the year, big wave awards, six event wild cards and four wild cards from the commissioner's office. And then you, that's 24.
0: And then you making a call about a big wave swell, which are, you know, half the time you, you don't know if it's gonna be a really good swell the night before it could you never know you never know never know. you never it's know It's weather,
1: right so it, it's weather. you I mean weathermen are wrong all the time I have been very fortunate in in all of the calls that I have made we've had successful events and for the most part I think that the fans were pleased the athletes were pleased I mean they're never perfect but I, I shouldn't expect that and I don't um, but for the most part We've been able to get through them, and it's never easy. And you're always just like waking up in the morning and hoping that it worked out. And you know, luckily, it's it, so far it has. And but that's it is stressful because you're you're calling an event that's you know you're gonna half million to a million dollar event that you're running. You know, better be good because if you don't, um, you, you, we have we have a problem. I mean, we we kind of almost had that issue with the Yeti, right? The Yeti, we called it on everyone called it on. You know, and that one's a different event because you have Quicksilver involved. But and, you're still a part of that. I mean, it's it, the the WSL was producing the broadcast. So, yeah, we were part of it. I mean, I was a competitor. So, I mean, I'm not really influencing the call because I can't. Right. That was um, the, the the year last year we ran it. That's how it worked. You know, it's it someone else's call. But obviously, I was in communication, like, thinking, well, what are you thinking? We all were. I mean, every athlete involved is thinking, oh, what do you think? What do you think? But we called it on. Everyone was there. And we didn't run it. And that's pretty cool for the integrity of the sport. But guess who gets stuck with the bill? I mean, the world surf league and Quicksilver get stuck with this bill that, you know, here we are. We are all here. The broadcast is set up. All the athletes are here. every all the fans. And we're like, that's the first time we've ever like fully had to cancel an event. And that's tough. You know, it's a, it's a big cost. And, um, I think it lets down everyone involved, but it's weather and we can't, you know, we just can't
0: predict the weather perfectly. A little bit of South wind. <laughs> yeah. ends The party. <laughs> yeah.
1: And again, so th- it, that part of it is, is a challenge. And a lot of it too, if you look at the call, there's a lot that goes into it. It's not like you just show up in the morning and go, Hey, we're on, you know, like you're making a, a green light call three days out, but really even further back than that, you're, you're shipping gear, you're shipping people, you're moving the train when <laughs> the train starts moving you know, probably five to six days out. Yeah. And depending on the
0: venue, and not all these venues are happening in California. No, I you're, mean, going, to, Mexico, you're yeah. going to Mexico. You're going to Mexico. So you're going to Portugal. You got to figure out Maui. customs. You got to figure out. I mean, that was a big thing. Like when I was uh, going down to Puerto, when I saw you down there, I couldn't get any of my canisters down there, and yep. my my inflatable canisters, because the customs wouldn't let the inflatable stuff in. So you guys got to figure out ways to get all that stuff down there for the event. It's yeah. just endless. And I'm it's, sure
1: it is, and that's just that's just you trying to get surfboards and. And safety here right let alone an entire broadcast that are coming across the border and you have to have carnes and all these things that you basically yeah you're right and and do you as you recall for Porto we actually had barricades blockades that are not allowing anything to move around the country now there are protests yes so I mean literally that if you understand this that event the nothing I mean some of the infrastructure was set up but none of the broadcast was set up until about seven o'clock the night before the event Nothing, zero, no comms, no cameras, no nothing. And that team, that World Surf League team, um, put together a webcast. And and, and and before that event, remember the rainstorm. There was a from? rainstorm that night. It was the craziest. I've been in Porto many many years. That was the craziest thunder, lightning, downpour I've ever seen. Tropical storm. And the truck pulled up in that storm. That had just come through the barricades and it took, you know, it had come from Mexico city. So the truck was coming from Mexico city. It had, it got turned around, um, at a blockade halfway through their trip, had to turn around go back, you know, six hours. And this poor guy's driving one guy driving and he, he literally got that thing, that truck there with all the gear at 7 PM the night before the event. And I was like, I went to bed going, I don't know how we're going to run an event. There's no way these guys are going to be able to set this thing up. And I got down there in the morning and they're like, yep, we're ready to go. I could not believe what went into getting that done. And and the team was amazing. I mean, and and sure enough, it was one of the coolest events we've ever run. That was amazing. Pretty pretty crazy, right? I mean, think about that stress that I'm holding on to. Like we're going to wake up in the morning and. You know, we've called this one on again and you get everybody and all the gear and everybody there, and all that expense. And, and you hope the waves are going to be there because you don't even know if it's going to be, is it too big? Is it not going to be big enough? Is it, you know, is it going to be closed out? It was closed out. Oh, but there's good Ah, oh, And then everybody has their opinion and you get a lot of influence from, you know, because again, I make myself available to have these guys give them, give them me their opinion. And, do you have a, do you have a motto
0: <laughs> going into these days. I think the tranquility is not waiting it is. for the storm to pass. <laughs> Can yeah. be a good one for it's you. It's true.
1: Right. And you do, you do have to take those moments and you breathe and, and you, and you have to understand that a decision that you're making, if you are going to go with your default and know that it's going to be either the fairest and best for all, which again, trying to please everybody being a people pleaser is really hard to do, but that's kind of where I'm at. You know, it's like, you know what I, what is best for all? And, um, and then obviously making that that call from the gut and uh it, again it's not easy and uh, you're bound to make mistakes and i you know I, i've been very fortunate that i haven't made any major mistakes so far um
0: but it is it sure, is mo- some, some of those moments after a successful <laughs> day just looking up at the sky thank
1: you yeah and 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 then like yeah and and it's and that's that's an achievement in itself right so there's some accomplishment that comes from that you don't necessarily hear it Right, because I, I, a lot of the times I'm hearing about the issues. Oh, you know the judging, rah, rah, rah. You know, well they missed my ride and rah, 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 You know, like because that stuff happens and that's what people affects people, um, and you know that that's what I hear. I don't hear like you know, I don't get a whole lot of knuckle bumps and like, dude, you killed it. You know, that's not something that you're necessarily going to hear all the time. And you have to understand
0: artists are rarely appreciated (laughs) until after they're dead. Right.
1: Pretty much. Right. I mean, and I'm not trying to ask for that. It's not something that, I mean, there's a sense of accomplishment that comes when you, when you crown a champion and all of a sudden there's the tour and you look at like, I think some of the nice accomplishments that come from that is when you have somebody actually emailing you from wherever in the world, wanting to be a part of it that says something right there. It says that you're actually producing something that people want to be a part of. And um, if that's the case, then you're doing the right job. So that's, I guess, the goal. People aren't going, screw that, I don't want to be part of that. You know, I I think most of the time I'm hearing about that they want to be a part
0: of it. Oh, it's the greatest show on earth when it happens. Um, I want to ask you about the women's. I want to ask you about Nazarene, and I'll let you go. Okay.
1: Where do you want to start with? I think think with the women's, um, that was something that's always been important to... To, to Gary Linden. He's, you know, he was always understanding that there's women in the lineup that want to compete and want to uh, do it and not necessarily compete with the men. I think that they're, um, they're different, different breed, right? So a, a woman wants to compete against women. That's just how it is in all sport. I think they deserve a platform in which to do that. Um, I don't necessarily agree with them competing with the men. I'm sure some of them would don't mind that, but I think overall it's, it's better if the women compete against themselves and give them a platform and do that. So it was important to the world surf league. It was important to Gary Linden. He was, like I said, he'd done it uh, in the past. We went to Oregon. There was a couple women's heats there. Um, obviously um, there was a lot of, um, press about Mavericks and, and the women being able to compete there and Bianca, Bianca Valenti, who is an advocate of, um, wanting competition for women, Kayla Kenley, um, Paige Alms, all these women wanted a platform. And so we, you know, as the world surf league, one of the prerogatives too, you look at equal prize money. For uh, the men's and women's tour, you know, that's equal prize money. It doesn't seem like it. Cause you look at it like, wait a second. But if you put the actual ratio, you have 36 men and 17 women and the amount of money that's in there, it's equal. They basically get paid um, the same, which is amazing. I think that that's something that we should always look at. I mean, tennis is there. Um, there's other sports that are trying to be there. So. Again, giving them the platform and I think they all want to be a part of it. I think it's great um, for publicity wise, you know, they get press out of it and it was a good time to do it being that there was so much on the press about Mavericks and, and you know, the tour itself had just made the change of equal prize money in the World Surf League. So it's just a great opportunity to do it. So it was important to me to get an event off, not just talk about it and do it, but get it off. Um, I also feel like, you know, we had a choice between two different venues to run one event. It was either going to be Toto Santos. Or it was going to be Piahi. Now, my feeling is that, you know, when I was looking at those two events that yeah, Todos could have been a, a good event. Um, but I just don't know if we could run it. I wanted to run it. I wanted the timing of it was like, Hey, Piahi, if we run piahi let's, you know, I think that they'd be cool. Cause there was a bunch of women that serve out there. There's some experience, although the women that were chosen, um, some of them didn't have a ton of experience, but wanted it. They, they called me they wanted to play. They wanted to participate. So um, my MP- feeling was,
0: MPI is a lot more challenging of a wave to oh, surf than for t- sure, for sure. I mean, Offshore wind, you got to deal with a big barrel. It's nuts. Oh, yeah. it's, it's nuts. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, yeah, it's, nuts. It,
1: it's uh, it's a challenging wave, and one of the most challenging in the world. But again, I think that if you look at at, at a surf at a big wave surf spots, there's probably more women challenge themselves going down there than than any other big wave. I mean, more than the Toto Santos. Not like I see a bunch of women at Toto Santos or. Um, you know, Mavericks is another one where there's a lot of women who, who go there and and show up and and catch waves. So, um, that's a great venue as well. But you know, again, looking at the forecast for that event, looking at the timing for the event, talking to the women, Hey, you know, what do you guys think? Yeah. We want to do it. You know, it'd be nice to have good conditions. Yeah. You'll be killer. And, you know, looking at the forecast, the wind was supposed to be light. (laughs) Now going to Maui, we know that it's always going to have some wind. It was a little windy for my liking. Um, for that event, especially for the women, cause they wanted a little bit less challenging conditions for that second. I mean, as soon as you put a uh, 15 to 20 knot trade wind on, on jaws, it, it changes, it changes the dynamic completely, especially for women that are light. And, uh, it was, that was a scary moment for me. Um, cause we had two heats of, of women. Some of them had never had a ton of experience. And, uh, you know, and when you call it on and if we can back up to that day, but. You know, we had to make a change on that morning. So originally the plan was because of the forecast we had, we're going to run men. We're going to start early. The peak of the swell is supposed to be really early in the morning and it's supposed to decrease through the day now. um, So the plan was get the women or the men done crown a champion. And then we'll do the women's two heats and crown a champion at then. And that would be on the decline of the swell. They were good with that. The winds are supposed to be light most of the day. Let's do it. And then all of a sudden what happened was is that we watched the buoys all night. And so I'm, paying attention to, you know, and and anybody who doesn't know out there is listening, the buoys are one of the few factual information that we can get on a swell. So there's a local buoy there. There's a buoy that they call buoy one, which is about eight to 10 hours away, depending on swell direction from Maui. So you can get, you can get a full read of what the swell is going to do. Um, by watching these buoy readings that will give you factual information. Oh, okay. The buoys are eight at 17. And now they're going to be, you know, 10 at 17 at 10, like you'll see the increase in the peak of the swell, and then you'll see the decline. And so you got to read those before the event. Now that night, all of a sudden the afternoon wasn't supposed to be bigger, but we saw some of the biggest readings happen in the afternoon on those buoys on those local buoys. So we had to make a change we got to run the women. We're going to run the first bound of the men. And then we're going to put the women out there. So we had to kind of throw a wild card at them. They're all preparing for an afternoon. And all of a sudden we call them the morning of, Hey, we need you down out the Harbor earlier. And, you know, and cause a little bit of a panic. Um, and, and that was something I learned. I think from that event, it's like, Hey, you got to be prepared to be ready at 6am in the morning. Cause we never know what's going to do, what we're going to do. But they all were, very accommodating they they got it done and um and the timing was great but there was wind and that's something that I just always have to consider even if it says it's going to be under five knots generally Pihi is going to have 10 to 15 knots of wind it's just uh that's how it is in Maui it's always windier than they say it's going to be Maui glass Maui glass so yeah we ran the event um the, the women charged I was uh very very um stoked on how they performed although there was some wipeouts and that to me as a commissioner, you don't want anybody to get hurt. And, uh, we had some injuries it was, um, it was a bummer. You know, we had Kyala who, who, you know, hurt her knee at Emmy Erickson, hurt her knee. Uh, we had Laura Enover hurt her knee and, you know, and these are all, uh, injuries that are going to hurt their career, especially someone like Laura, who, you know, makes her money off of competing on the championship tour. So you know, that was, that was heartbreaking a little bit. Um, but I, like I said, and you look at what happened in that event, like. It was it was uh, amazing to watch them give it a full effort. And Paige Alms' performance was over the top. She was you can tell how that experience of living in Maui and surfing in Maui paid off. I mean, Billy Kemper is another example, two-time winner. It, it, they just know how to surf that wave. And uh, I think what it did was it helped to inspire the women coming up in the future that want to participate. I think it inspired them to like go. Okay, this is what we have to do. You know, she is that Paige is at that level um, that we need to aspire there. So it grew a little inspiration. I think that it was um, exciting. It was definitely exciting. And, uh, got it done, got it done. Right. And we, we've got a, you know, a champion Paige Alms and, um, she, it, it created a lot of press for the league. It, uh, you know, it gave a, a lot of exposure to the women. So, um, overall it was a good thing. And, it, and luckily no one was seriously injured and everyone's going to heal and, uh, they'll be back. I think Amy Erickson, and I, you know, I had conversations with her afterwards, and She you know, she had probably sustained the worst of all the injuries. Um, she had major surgery on her knee and She's gonna be back and she's already you can see for Instagram. You can see she's um, Already balancing on the ball. And so the strength is there. And it's, it's good to see Had you been to Nazare before this event? Yes um, You know when we go to Portugal Portugal first of all just the first and foremost is one of the Um, most supportive countries of surfing anywhere in the world. Actually, it is the most supportive. Uh, they, they cater to every division that we have. They have a junior, they've had the world juniors there. They've got women. They've got, uh, you know, the Cascais women's pro. They have a QS qualifying series, major event, 10,000. They've got big wave. They've got, um, you know, again, championship tour events. So, and it's all subsidized by sponsorship and everything from the country of Portugal. They love it. And it's rad to see and I've stoked. I wish every country had that kind of support. So, you know, when Nazare was first introduced to me by Garrett McNamara back in the day, oh, yeah, there's this place, man, it's this beach break. It's so gnarly. It's got this deep canyon. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Garrett, you know, and he's he's a bit of a guy who really pumps up anything and everything that happens in his life, which is great. And so he's kind of like, okay, so you kind of have to go, Okay, Garrett's like saying this this about this wave and I'm like, eh, hey, okay, you know, I kind of like, you kind of almost take it for, for granted in a way. And so it took me a little while to get there. You know, my first trips to the, you know, when I was on the World Surf League to go to Portugal and spend some time there was three years ago, actually it would have been four years ago. So we're going into the fourth season. And one of the places that you go to, to get waves when it's flat is Nazare. And it's got this huge, deep Canyon, one of the deepest in the world that feeds into this, um, into this beach break. And it's a special place. I mean, it literally takes any swell that's in the water and triples it. There are not many places in the world that'll do that. Why? Because of that deep water canyon. So it's so deep and it feeds so far out into the Atlantic. That there's no obstruction. Anytime you have shallow water in front of a wave, I mean, East Coast is a prime example. It's shallow as far as an ocean is concerned because of just the bathymetry on it. It's flat. So the East Coast will never really get super big waves because it's shallow. All that happens is as bigger the swell is it gets big swells, but the waves just break out to sea and have no energy. They can't focus anywhere. So what happens with a big deep water Canyon is, is that the water comes in and it feeds in the swell really the energy travels very deep. Um, it's pretty unique how swells work, but they'll lift in shallow water and they'll, and the energy can get drained from it. If there's no obstruction, like a deep water Canyon, those swells will feed and focus through that Canyon and then feed onto the shoreline. And this Canyon literally goes to the shore. I mean, it's like, so there's unobstructed. So when those swell, all the energy that is possibly produced by this swell, doesn't get depleted by shallow water. It literally focuses and directs into Nazareth and the canyon is, is you know. and,
0: and then is the swell refracting off of the canyon it's, and that's why you're getting such peaky waves. Yes.
1: I mean, and there's, there's a lot of dynamics that goes into that, that wave. It's a big point. So you're getting some backwash, but I think truly why you see it wedge like that is the curves in the canyon and it's feed the way it feeds in and, and connects with other swell that moves over the top, you know, and it's just, just, it's a very unique um, and dynamic place. So, Looking at a trying to you know, we knew big waves were there. I mean you look at the, you know Guinness world records of, of riding a wave Is there it's one of the biggest waves on the planet, but it was kind of known as a toe spot because it is so dangerous now with the advent of uh, you know The paddle surfing being something that people are more challenged by because it is more difficult than holding on to a machine
0: And what, what makes that wave so dangerous specifically? Well, um, first
1: of all the wave itself is huge. massive, Yeah
0: and um, you can get held down
1: um, it's also not focused into one direct spot I mean it's some of the best big ways in the world uh, you know I think to me Mavericks is one of them because it is it is in the same spot every time right you, you for the most part it doesn't move around too much um, so you can sit in a safe zone if you want and sit off to the side and you can watch it and you're completely safe um, but if you want to challenge yourself in one of the most dynamic you know slabbing kind of big ways in the world you can go there. Um, you know, Jaws kind of a different, it it does move around a lot more. Um, but those, those best big waves are, you know, you want to keep it into one central spot. I mean, there's a huge channel at Jaws too. There is no channel at Nazare. So for
0: safety too, there aren't guys hanging out in the channel on skis, rushing in to get guys. They're constantly going back and forth, trying to avoid getting hit with a 60 foot face wave.
1: And, and on top of that, it's that wave specifically because of the dynamics of it, it'll break 500 yards outside of you. Like you'll be sitting in a spot you think is safe and a wave will break, you know, 200 yards outside or even further. So, and, and there's always these waves that, you know, these special waves, these special sets that come that are bigger, just substantially bigger. And the fact that Nazare is that way, if it takes those 10 foot swells and turns them into 30 foot on the beach, which translate to 60, 70, 80 feet on the face and, and they break and you're going to get mopped. And so it's a, it is by far the most challenging event to run a big wave paddle event um and reading from water safety and from being an athlete so we we had question marks is this possible and you know so it took us a little bit of time to understand i mean there was always the possibility of you know nazare saying yeah we want to see an event here let's um, try and make it happen but um you know we needed to look at it who are you communicating with (laughs) People who surfed it. I mean, Garrett would be, would be an example and, yeah. and he knew that there was times that you could paddle it. Um, you know, and then, and also taking guys that, that I, you know, that are on tour, Nick lamb is another example, Aaron gold, Cole Christensen, Jamie Mitchell all had made trips to ride these waves and they all came back said, yeah, we could do it, you know, but the, <laughs> again, you know, how can we do it? What can we do it to make it safe? What can we do it to, uh,
0: to make it action packed? Um, You know, is it possible? We just didn't know. So what does a safety meeting look like uh, the day before when you're trying to communicate with ski drivers and it's not as simple as, well, here's the channel, and you come in, you pick the guy who's going to go in and pick him up? Yeah, I mean, the, the team, the water
1: safety team had to, you know, kind of draw off of, of certain events that they have similarities. And I think an example being that we ran Porto and that was another event where Porto Escondido is a beach break. So it's, you're going to have, um, you know, the ski. So what we had to do was develop somewhat of a plan, um, to find out how, what's going to work where you're not causing wakes in the lineup and you're actually making it fair. So you're not just like one guy is getting picked up and getting dropped off right in front of a wave. And you know, all of these things that we kind of come into play to have a fair competition. So we, you know, we, we learned from that a little bit, although, you know, Nazare is even that much more different because your playing field, you don't just have an inside and an outside where you do at Porto. It's like, there's the impact zone. Here's the beach. You can get picked up here. Um, you know, and the outside's here and you get dropped off and you paddle into the zone. Whereas Nazare, there is no, like when you're dropping somebody off, it's it still could be on the inside, right? there's never an outside where you paddle into the zone and, and the insides, three football fields long. So it's a whole different dynamic. And, so we had to kind of learn um a lot of bypass experiences and and designing something that we you know think will work and then you go for it and you do it and you know ultimately there was we were we were expecting to see a lot more craft you know getting toppled and a lot more losing of boats and and then we did but we applied some of the best drivers in the world who have some of the most you know experience at working in our competitions but also at nazare so we used a team that's done a lot of tow surfing and, and driving of the boats there. They became part of our team. They understand they, they worked with our team and how competition works. And we also brought in a ton of guys that have worked on our, you know, Abe Lerner. And we, there's a cast of crew that have been able to, and now, I mean, looking at it, those guys have had so much experience. They're the best in the world. They literally are as, as far as competition, safety and, and big wave thing. They're, they're one of the best in the world besides the Hawaiian water patrol who you know, do it in Hawaii. So. Uh, you know, and, and some of the guys that we have actually work for, for, uh, those guys at the Hawaiian water
0: patrol. And what's the vibe like? I've never been out there Describe to me off the plane, a few distinct, um, characteristics of Nazare. The, well, the, place. Uh,
1: the, the, the energy and uh, well, the, the town itself is cool. It's super, you know, it's an old school fishing village that literally, um, has embraced surfing, surfing has, you know, and Garrett McNamara with him bringing the spotlight, to that wave has changed that town. It literally is a totally different town at this time of the year. When it's wintertime, there's nobody there now it is a constant hustle and bustle of people wanting to see the wave, you know? So it's been brought to the globe. And when people go to Portugal, they go to Nazaré and they go to look at this beach and in the past, that beach was Praia do Norte, right? That's uh, you know North beach. And what that North beach was, was it was known for death. And, and it was, it killed fishermen and it killed people. And so people stayed away from it. So literally before surfers came there and started challenging it, it was a place that was desolate. You went there, there was not a soul around. It was crazy. I mean, and that was, you know, just probably 10 years ago, it was known as, um, again, that they didn't go to that site. So the other side of the beach, which is where the town is, is is protected. It's not the, you know, no big waves there. It's this beautiful little village that is right up to the nestled to the sand. And it's this gorgeous, you know, European town on the beach. And it's, you know, summertime. It's this Mecca, you know, and they hang out and sunbathe and play in the sand and, you know, do that. But as far as the winter is concerned, it just goes dormant and quiet, you know, and, um, you know, the biggest industry there was, was fishing because of the Canyon. and uh, obviously the fish kind of are dan- dynamic in that area. But now, like I said, they've loved Nazare, love surfing because it's changed the economy there. People are coming there and eating lunches and, and enjoying it and buying tourist gifts and, and they're in, you know, tourism is a huge industry. They understand that and they support it. So Nazare was all about it. So you show up in this town and now even in the winter, you see surfboards on the roofs and, uh, you know, people are coming to go to that beach and there's always waves always. Um, yeah, even when it's, you know, two foot and flat, it's four foot and, and, and it, it's protected somewhat and it's a cool little surf
0: town really is what it is now. You're kind of, you're describing Puerto. Also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The yeah. submarine Canyon, the yep. fishing town, yep. the wave that created the economy. Yep. And that's exactly it. And the magnification of swell.
1: And and that's and good because Portugal understands that. They they were one of the first to really embrace the World Surfing Reserves and, and you know, Aracera's zone. There's tons of great waves there. I mean, all the way from Lisbon all the way north, it's just filled with coves and river mouths and point breaks and slabs. And, and you know, it's just, just another aspect of it. I mean, Aracera is like Santa Cruz. It's uh, just a ton of waves, compact in a really tight zone, great point breaks. And, you know, Lisbon has a ton of great... Um, beach breaks. I you know, when it's bigger, it's protected, and, and then you go up to Nazareth itself, and you've got this deep water canyon. So it's just got it all there. Um, and like I said, they, the country in, understands that and embraces surfing and sees that it's an industry and and supports
0: it. Thanks for taking the time, my friend. No problem. we could We're, go for hours. Buddy. I know. We'll it have have to make it happen yeah. again sometime. You're right. you're easy, man. I just like <laughs> wind you up with a word, and you'll go. <laughs> Sorry about that. I love it. I love it. Cool. Um, where can people find you?
1: Uh, well, I'm Freeline Design. You know, I think that that's something that's going to be more time I'm going to be putting some focus on. So the surf shop there at 821 41st Avenue, um, you know, petermel.com has most of my, uh, you know, Instagram handles and all that stuff if you want to find information. But overall, you know, my career has spanned a, a huge amount of um, different aspect aspects, but it's all centered around um, hitting the lineup and going surfing. So uh, hopefully you'll just see me in the water. That's where you're really going to find me. <laughs>
0: Another one bites the dust. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. It takes about one minute, and it really helps me out. And reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, or my website, kyle.surf, and let me know who you want me to have on the show next. All right, peeps. Get out there. Go ask someone an unexpected, a challenging, and a fascinating question today. See you soon.